BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, international man of misery, returned from Chicago, Illinois. I was in Chicago performing my ribald brand of stand-up comedy, and now I have returned to old Savannah and uh, Chicago. Boy, that's a pretty, that's a pretty city, isn't it? Just a good-looking city, at least there in the glittering, I don't know, Lake Michigan area. I don't, I, mean, I don't know what they call the different areas there, but, you know, there's kind of a glittering downtown filled with all that famous Chicago architecture and that famous Chicago river and all the famous... Chicago things, none of which I can think of, because I don't, I don't, I actually have no idea what's famous in Chicago. They got a bean, they got a big bean there, big silvery thing, big sort of, uh, you know, organic looking amoeba sculpture right there in the park, and they call it the bean, and I don't know, I don't know why it's so famous or why people get so excited about it, but that's right there, it was across the street from my hotel. Had a lovely time in Chicago, very brief stay just a day, but I saw my wizened uncle who lives Chicagoland. He joined me for a Chinese dinner before my show, and then he accompanied me to the program. We had a fine time catching up. And now, as I say, I am returned to Sultry Savannah to enjoy the final days of summer. We are getting to the best time of year in Savannah. And when you say the best time of year, really what you're talking about is about six months, six, seven months, where it's just gorgeous every day. And you can walk around in shirt sleeves, you know, stroll through Chippewa Square, wearing short sleeves in February. What a joy that is. I've <sighs> been struggling a little bit. Well, struggling might be the wrong word, uh, just torn a little bit between uh, eating well and working out and doing nothing and eating like a pig. That's sort of the two uh, extremes that I have been swinging between pretty much by the hour. I mean, not that I would work out on the hour, but trying to take care of myself. And then I do that for a few days. And then I'm like, you know, what? you know, it would be good right now if I ate a jar of mayonnaise and some Crisco. That's what I need. Or maybe maybe I'll just uh, drink this bottle of castor oil. Well, that's the stuff that makes you throw up, right? Yeah. 
in the old movies, they, they would drink castor oil and make them throw up. That's not what I meant. I just meant something highly caloric. Maybe I'll drink this chocolate fountain. That's what I, that's kind of what I was going at. Uh, let me go over to Golden Corral and just stick my head under a chocolate fountain. That's kind of where I am, you know, vacillating on the hour between those two impulses, uh, trying to find a happy medium and so far not so much succeeding, but you know, that's what, that's what life's all about, isn't it? Whether it's here or it's in, uh, the bustling Midwest of Chicago or Kansas City, we're all just trying to figure it out as we go with limited information and just trying to make good decisions based on logic and intuition and, uh, you know, sometimes the more sensual impulses. In my case, that's the desire to drink a chocolate fountain at the Golden Corral. But in the case of Clyde Griffiths, it might be, you know, being surrounded by three young ladies of questionable provenance. I mean, I don't, I don't really know if their provenance is questionable. That really doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Um, questionable reputation, let's put it that way. Not that Clyde comes from any great family or anything like that. But at least we know Clyde. We don't know these other gals. You know, he, he shows up at Ratterer's house. You got these three flapper girls coming in. Hortense and Greta. And then Ratterer's sister Louise comes bustling in late. And all they can talk about is how they go out every night. You know, go dancing, drinking, cutting a rug, having themselves a good old time. In fact, uh, one of them goes so far to say as to, as to say, gee, I'd die if I had to stay in one night. You gotta have a little fun when you work all day. Yeah, don't I know it, sister. I mean, I don't because I don't work. But if I did, I would know that you have to have a little bit of fun when you work all day. And Clyde is watching this commotion and this hubbub and these three finely plumed figures gathered there at Chateau Ratterer discussing these matters and finds himself burning, burning with a lust. I don't mean necessarily a sexual lust, although that's part of it, but a lust to experience these people and their commotion and their comings and goings and their doings. And so Clyde is a little bit in awe of these gals and this life. So why don't we pick it up there? Where are we? We're in a chapter, some, uh, chapter 10 of an American tragedy. You know, sometimes we don't end the episodes at the chapter ends, and that's been one of the great things about reading this book is the chapters and the podcast seem to sync up perfectly in terms of length, but not in this case. So here we are. Uh, Louise has just come into the house. Unlike her brother, she was brisk and vigorous and more lithe and as pretty as either of these other two. And then she sees Clyde and she says, oh, you must be Clyde. My brother won't shut up about you. And Clyde, very much flattered, mumbled that he wished he had, that he wished he had what? Oh, I wondered why he didn't bring around, bring you around here before. Well, Clyde is thinking, I wish he had. Make time with Louise Ratterer. Let me tell you something. If my last name is Ratterer and Clyde Griffiths proposes, I'm changing my name. I'm going with Louise Griffiths. I'm not going with Ratterer. All right, let's pick it up. But the two visitors, 
After conferring with Louise in a small front bedroom to which they all retired, reappeared presently, and because of strenuous invitations, which were really not needed, decided to remain. And Clyde, because of their presence, was now intensely wrought up and alert, eager to make a pleasing impression and to be received upon terms of friendship here. And these three girls, finding him attractive, were anxious to be agreeable to him, so much so that for the first time in his life they put him at ease with the opposite sex and caused him to find his tongue. Well, that's a little gross, Theodore Dreiser. We don't need to hear about him finding his tongue. I mean, we're just trying to read a book. We don't need all this puerile imagery. Grow up. We was just going to warn you not to eat so much, laughed Greta Miller, turning to Louise. And now, see, we are all trying to eat again. Wait, and now, see, we're all trying to eat again. Well, all right, fine. She laughed heartily. And they'll have pies and cakes and everything at Kitty's. So I forgot they're going to a party over at Kitty's, you know. I think it's, uh, I can't remember what kind of party it is. Birthday party, going away party, I don't know. Maybe just a, maybe just a party party. Oh, Jean, we're supposed to dance, too, on top of all this. Well, heaven help me, is all I have to say, put in Hortense. The peculiar sweetness of her mouth, as he saw it, as well as the way she crinkled it when she smiled, caused Clyde to be quite beside himself with admiration and pleasure. She looked quite delightful, wonderful to him. Indeed, her effect on him made him swallow quickly and half choke on the coffee he had just taken. He laughed and felt irrepressibly gay. At that moment, she turned on him and said, See what I've done to him now? Oh, that ain't all you've done to me, exclaimed Clyde. My, my, Clyde. <laughs> you, are feeling, you are feeling your oats, are you not, young sir? Oh, you randy buck. That's not all you've done to me, exclaimed Clyde, pointing to his boner. That's not what it says. He did not... Uh, he did not point to his boner, and I would be horrified if he had. Oh, that ain't all you've done to me, exclaimed Clyde, suddenly being seized with an inspiration and a flow of thought and courage. Of a sudden, because of her effect on him, he felt bold and courageous, albeit a little foolish, and added, Say, I'm getting kind of woozy with all the pretty faces I see around here. Well, you silver-tongued devil, I'm getting kind of woozy. With all the pretty faces. My God, his head is spinning, his tongue is loose. The boy has found his swerve. Oh, gee, you don't want to give yourself away that quick around here, Clyde, cautioned Ratterer genially. These high binders will be after you to make sure you take them wherever they want to go. You better not begin that way. And sure enough, Louise Ratterer, not to be abashed by what her brother had just said, observed... You dance, don't you, Mr. Griffiths? No, I don't, replied Clyde, suddenly brought back to reality. By this inquiry, and regretting most violently the handicap that this was likely to prove in this group, but you bet I wish I did now, he added gallantly, and almost appealingly, looking first at Hortense, and then at Greta Miller and Louise. Ah, I see, I see. But all pretended not to notice his preference, although Hortense titillated with her triumph because he looked first at her. That's what I was 
recognizing it didn't appear obvious to me at all that just because his eye had lighted first on Hortense, that they would all take that to understand that he preferred her above the other. Gals, well, I guess he does, and certainly by description that seems to be the case as well. Well, Hortense, you have the favorite eye of Clyde Griffiths shining down upon you. And as we've already uh, drawn some parallels between Hortense, these gals, and the character of Arabella in Jude the Obscure, I find myself a little bit cautious in wishing for Clyde and Hortense to get together, these two young people, because I know what happens when two young people get together under these sorts of circumstances. Things can quickly develop, blossom, and then spoil. So we will keep an eye on that. So Hortense titillates with her triumph, She was not convinced that she was so greatly taken with him, but it was something to triumph thus easily and handsomely over these others. And the others felt it. Ain't that too bad, she commented a little indifferently, and superiorly now that she realized that she was his preference. You might come along with us, you and Tom, if you did. There's going to be mostly dancing at Kitty's. Clyde began, and they're talking about the dancing now, you, you know, it's, uh, ain't that too bad, meaning you don't know how to dance. You idiot. Idiot. Clyde began to feel and look crushed at once. To think that this girl, to whom all of all those here he was most drawn, could dismiss him and his dreams and desires thus easily, and all because he couldn't dance, and his accursed home training was responsible for all this, He felt broken and cheated. What a boob he must seem not to be able to dance. And Louise Ratterer looked a little puzzled and indifferent too. But Greta Miller, whom he liked less than Hortense, came to his rescue with, Oh, it ain't so hard to learn. I could show you in a few minutes after dinner if you wanted to. It's only a few steps you have to know. And then you could go anyhow if you wanted to. Clyde was grateful and said so determined to learn here or elsewhere at the first opportunity. Why hadn't he gone to a dancing school before this, he asked himself. But the thing that pained him most was the seeming indifference of Hortense now that he had made it clear that he liked her. Perhaps it was that Bert Gettler, previously mentioned with whom she had gone to the dance, was making it impossible for him to interest her. So he was always going to be a failure this way. Oh, gee. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> you know, Dreiser's, Dreiser's uh, you know, talking like the kids talk. You know, he's doing, he's doing a little of a Steve Buscemi with the skateboard memeing. Hello, young people. Fellow young people, as it were. Delight. It's a delight. Fair to say, as I think about this now, that uh, all of the novels we've read to this point, Jude the Obscure, Frankenstein, Wuthering Heights, and now an American tragedy, all kind of involve the whims and passions of youth. Jude Folly, youthful obsession with getting an education and making something of himself. Frankenstein, the Frankenstein trio, friends who, uh, you know, are gay in spirit, and a sort of happy triumvirate 
And then Frankenstein ruins it by going off to school and making Big Buddy. And then you've got Wuthering Heights and affair, affair, which is essentially about affairs of young people. And then and now this. Is the novel particularly geared towards the whims and passions of youth? Perhaps it is. Perhaps this form, this long form, really responds well to youth and diving into their, their hot-headedness. There's something to think about. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking it through here a little bit. Is there something about youth that is particularly well-suited to the novel? I think so, because youth is all about yearning, isn't it? It's all about the internal life. It is all about uh, that which goes on in the heart and the head and the groin. And uh, perhaps there is something about that time in life when one's passions run quickest. That speaks directly to the novelistic form where you can explore the interior life in a way that you can't explore as well in the more visual mediums. Or maybe I'm just talking about my ass, out my ass. Who knows? Anyway, let's take a break. I'll sip some morning tea here, which I have. Back in a moment on Obscure. Back in Obscure, an American tragedy, youthful passions overflowing. Good old Grace has offered to teach Clyde to cut a rug. Oh, Greta, excuse me, not Grace, Greta. Greta has offered to teach him to cut a rug so that he can go over to Kitty's and dance with the gals and the other young folks who are likely to be there. Probably take a bong hit or two, you know, or, I don't know, drink some bathtub gin or something. I don't know what these kids in their 20s do. Stuff like that, I imagine. Not drinking, probably swimming in bathtub gin. Probably taking off their bloomers and getting in the tub and just splashing around. You make gin out of, I forget, juniper berries? Let's call it juniper berries. All right. But, uh, yeah, so Greta's going to teach him to dance after dinner. But the moment the dinner was over, and while the others were still talking, the first to put on a dance record and come over with hands extended was Hortense. Well, well who was determined not to be outdone by her rival in this way. She was not particularly interested or fascinated by Clyde, at least not to the extent of troubling about him as Greta did. But if her friend was going to attempt a conquest in this manner, was it not just as well to forestall her? And so, while Clyde misread her change of attitude to the extent of thinking that she liked him better than he had thought, she took him by the hands, thinking at the same time that he was too bashful. However, placing his right arm about her waist, his others clasped in hers at her shoulder, she directed his attention to her feet and his and began to illustrate the few primary movements of the dance. But so eager and grateful was he, almost intense and ridiculous, she did not like him very much, thought him a little unsophisticated and too young. At the same time, there was a charm about him which caused her to wish to assist him, and soon he was moving about with her quite easily, 
and afterwards with Greta and Louise, but wishing always it was Hortense. And finally, he was pronounced sufficiently skillful to go, if he would. Well, you know he's going to go cut a rug at Kitty's. Who could resist that? I heard there's going to be Domino's Pizza there. Two different kinds. One just cheese, but one with pepperoni. And I heard they were going to go roller skating afterwards. Over to the roller rink. And I heard after that, they might even go to Denny's. So it's going to be a good time at Kitty's if you can just cut a rug and it turns out Clyde can't. Well... There is something, uh, I think, uh, true and astute in this writing of Dreiser and, and talking about the rivalry between the three girls, Hortense and Greta and Louise, although this seems chiefly to be between Greta and Hortense, where Clyde prefers Hortense. Hortense doesn't give a whit about Clyde, but Greta, perhaps favoring Clyde, offers to teach him to dance, Hortense feeling threatened because Hortense was Clyde's preferred, now tries to usurp the attention that Greta has bestowed upon him by offering to dance with him. Clyde misreads her intentions and finds himself swept up in his enthusiasms for Hortense, though they are not returned. And that feels exactly like I remember youth feeling. Very confusing, trying to sniff the wind for intentions, trying to understand what people wanted and what they didn't want and who they liked and who they didn't like and all the complicated undercurrents that exist between friends and romantic rivalries. It's, uh, it's a very confusing and hot-headed time. You know, frankly, if I was Clyde and I had these three gals arrayed before me, Louise and Hortense and Greta, even though my eye may have initially alighted on Hortense, I'm probably going to favor the gal who seems to favor me. I mean, that would be Greta. But who knows? Who knows what's going to happen at Kitty's? Maybe a girl fight. Maybe a slap fight. Oh, wouldn't that be something? And now he, the thought of being near her, Hortense, uh, being able to dance with her again, drew him so greatly that despite the fact that three youths, among them that same Bert Gettler, appeared on the scene to escort them, and although he and Ratterer had previously agreed to go to a theater together, he could not help showing how much he would prefer to follow those others, so much so that Ratterer finally agreed to abandon the theater idea. And soon they were off, Clyde grieving that he could not walk with Hortense, who was with Gettler, and hating his rival because of this, but still attempting to be civil to Louise and Greta, who bestowed sufficient attention on him to make him feel at ease. Ratterer, having noticed his extreme preference and being alone with him for a moment, said, "'You better not get too stuck on that Hortense Briggs.' I don't think she's on the level with anybody. She's got that fellow Gettler and others. She'll only work you and you might not get anything either. Jeez. <laughs> She'll only work you and you might not get anything <laughs> either. <laughs> it's a little crass. I mean, I don't know if he means it in exactly the crass way that I'm interpreting it, but I think he does. He might not get anything either. But Clyde in spite of this honest and well-meant caution, 
was not to be dissuaded. On sight, and because of the witchery of a smile, the magic and vigor of motion and youth, he was completely infatuated and would have given or done anything for an additional smile or glance or hand pressure, and that despite the fact that he was dealing with a girl who no more knew her own mind than a moth, <laughs> and it was just reaching the stage where she was finding it con and convenient and profitable to use boys of her own years or a little older for whatever pleasures or clothes she desired. She is Arabella, and Arabella is she, and there is a linkage between these two uh, 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 distant generations, you know, because I think there's about a hundred years between Arabella and Hortense Briggs, but they seem to be cut from the same finery, do they not? Probably a finery of chiffon of some sort, taffeta, some frills, some poofy shoulders, some brass buttons, all assembled into the shape of these gals who understand the eddies and currents of male desire. The party proved nothing more than one of those ebullitions, I like that, I like the word ebullient, but ebullitions of the youthful mating period. The house of Kitty Keen was little more than a cottage in a poor street under bare December trees. But to Clyde, because of the passion for a pretty face that was suddenly lit in him, it had the color and the form and gaiety of romance itself. And the young girls and boys that he met there, girls and boys of the Ratterer, Heglund, Hortense Stripe, were still of the very substance and texture of that energy, ease, and forwardness which he would have given his soul to possess. And curiously enough, in spite of a certain nervousness on his part, he was by reason of his new companions made an integral part of the gaieties. Yeah, see, that, that's just how it is, isn't it? There is, there is nothing quite like that youthful energy. I remembered I was coming back from Jacksonville, Florida. Oh, probably not more than three or four weeks ago. I was driving my car back from the poker place. It was late. It was probably 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. I had to charge my car. I've got a preferred place that I stopped to charge uh, because across the railroad tracks, if you charge your car, you got your choice when it's late at night of the gas station where you can buy snacks and such or the Waffle House where you can sit down for a hot bowl of chili while the car charges. Well, I decided to go over to the Waffle House for a hot bowl of chili while the car charges and I almost didn't go in because the Waffle House was filled with youths. Many youths indeed. And it wasn't that I didn't want to go in because of the youths. I didn't want to go in because I thought, oh, I'll have to wait forever. But I could see as I as I sort of circled around the corner that this, these high-spirited high school kids, and I assumed they were in high school, maybe after some event, a, a game or something, I don't know what they were doing, but they were in high high spirits and they were up to high jinks. And they were, they were boisterous and ebullient. But it seemed like they'd mostly been served at that point, so I thought, well, I can... I can probably grab myself a boot, get myself 
bowl of chili and all will be well. Uh, but, you know, if you've ever been around a pack of teenagers, my God, the energy that emanates from them is scary. Now, is there anything scarier than a group of teenagers? My God, they're just, a, they're just terrifying in their rambunctiousness, are they not? Because they don't give a shit, you know? They're, they're feeling their oats as they're out there in the world, you know, descending on a Burger King or a Waffle House in the middle of the night, playing their boombox stereos. I remember I got kicked out of Burger King when I was a youth for playing a boombox in the restaurant. I was just being an asshole. Anyway, the youths, the scary youths. And on this occasion, he was destined to view a type of girl and ute in action such as previously it had not been his fortune or misfortune, as you will, to see. There was, for instance, a type of sensual dancing which Louise and Hortense and Greta indulged in with the greatest nonchalance and assurance. They're doing the Lombada, my God, the forbidden dance. They're in KC 1925. How dare they? At the same time, many of these youths carried whiskey and a hip flask from which they not only drank themselves, but gave others to drink, boys and girls indiscriminately. Can you imagine somebody else drinking from your hip flask? If you're a boy, giving it to another boy by God? It's practically Sodom and Gomorrah over at Kitty Keene's house. Her little cottage under bare December trees. And in that cottage, the Lombada. Oh, not the Lombada. Wait, what's the, what's the forbidden dance? Uh, let's crank up the, let's crank up the uh, research machine. And the forbidden dance is the... What is that called? Oh, yeah, the Lombada. All right. Oh, I'm thinking of the Macarena as the one that it, that, it, that it isn't. But, in fact, it is the Lombada, not the Macarena. Well, that's what they're doing. They're probably doing the Macarena there, too. They don't care. And they're drinking out of each other's hip flasks, probably not even wiping it down. And the general hilarity, for this reason being not a little added to, they fell into more intimate relations, spooning with one and another, Hortense and Louise and Greta included, also to quarreling at times, and it appeared to be nothing out of the ordinary, as Clyde saw, for one ute or another to embrace a girl behind a door, to hold her on his lap in a chair in some secluded corner, to lie with her on a sofa, whispering intimate and unquestionably welcome things to her, and although at no time did he espy Hortense doing this, still, as he saw, she did not hesitate to sit on the laps of various boys or to whisper with rivals behind doors, and this for a time so discouraged and at the same time incensed him that he felt he could not and would not have anything more to do with her. She was too cheap, vulgar, and considerate. I also remember that that uh, that feeling of being out and among the girl that you had your eye on, and she would didn't seem to care for me at all, you know, or seemed indifferent at best, and the the the, the longing and despair that those feelings would produce. Oh, just so sad. At the same time, having partaken of the various drinks offered him, 
so as not to seem less worldly wise than the others, until brought to a state of courage and daring. Not ordinarily characteristic of him, he ventured to half-plead with her, and at the same time half-reproach her for her too lax conduct. You're a flirt, you are. You don't care who you jolly, do you? This as they were dancing together after one o'clock to the music of a youth named Wilkins at the none-too-toneful piano. She was attempting to show him a new step in a genial and yet coquettish way, and with an amused, sensuous look. What do you mean, flirt? I don't get you. Oh, don't you, replied Clyde, a little crossly, and still attempting to conceal his real mood by a deceptive smile. I've heard about you. You jolly em all. Oh, do I? She replied quite irritably. Well, I haven't tried to jolly you very much. <laughs> I do like that verb very much. You jolly em all, don't you? Well, I didn't try to jolly you. <laughs> I'm going to try to start incorporating that into my daily life. Jolly as a verb instead of an adjective. I like it very much. Well, now, don't get mad, he half-pleaded and half-scolded, fearing, perhaps, that he had ventured too far and might lose her entirely now. I don't mean anything by it. You don't deny that you let a lot of those fellas make love to you. They seem to like you anyway. Oh, well, of course they like me, I guess. I can't help that, can I? <laughs> I can't help but that boys fall all over themselves to be with me. When you got a figure like this, I mean, she's not saying any of that. I'm saying that. Well, I'll tell you one thing. He blurted boastfully and passionately. I could spend a lot more on you than they could. I got it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way to a girl's heart. Just start talking about how much money you're going to spend on him. He'd been thinking only the moment before of $55 in bills that snuggled comfortably in his pocket. Oh, I don't know, she retorted not a little intrigued by this cash offer, as it were, and at the same time, not a little set up and removed by the fact that she could thus inflame nearly all the youths in this way. She was really a little silly, very light-headed, who was infatuated by her own charms and looked in every mirror, admiring her eyes, her hair, her neck, her hands, her figure, and practicing a peculiarly fetching smile. Peculiarly. That's a word I've always had trouble pronouncing. And uh, again, you remember Arabelle and the little trick that she had where she would pinch her cheek to make it look rouged, look like she was a little flush? Well, this is, I mean, this is just Arabella redux. At the same time, she was not unaffected by the fact that Clyde was not a little attractive to look upon, although so very green. She liked to tease such beginners. He was a bit of a fool as she saw him, but he was connected with the Green Davidson, and he was well-dressed, and no doubt he had all the money he said and would spend it on her. Some of those whom she liked best did not have much money to spend. Lots of fellows with money would like to spend it on me. She tossed her head and flicked her eyes and repeated her coyest smile. At once, Clyde's countenance darkened. The witchery of her look was too much for him. The skin of his forehead crinkled and then smoothed out, 
His eyes burned lustfully and bitterly, his old resentment of life and deprivation showing. No doubt all she said was true. There were others who had more and would spend more. He was boasting and being ridiculous. She was laughing at him. After a moment, he added weakly, I guess that's right, too. They couldn't want you any more than I do. The uncalculated honesty of it flattered her not a little. He wasn't so bad after all. They were gracefully gliding about as the music continued. Oh, well, I don't flirt everywhere like I do here. These fellas and girls all know each other. We're always going around together. You mustn't mind what you see here. She was lying artfully, but it was soothing to him nonetheless. Gee, I, I'd give anything if you'd only be nice to me, he pleaded desperately and yet ecstatically. I never saw a girl I'd rather have than you. You're swell. I'm crazy about you. Why won't you come out to dinner with me and let me take you to a show afterwards? Don't you want to do that tomorrow night or Sunday? Those are my two nights off. I work other nights. She hesitated at first, for even now, she was not so sure that she wished to continue this contact. There was Gettler, to say nothing of several others, all jealous and attentive. Even though he spent money on her, she might not wish to bother with him. He was already too eager and he might become troublesome. At the same time, the natural coquetry of her nature would not permit her to relinquish him. He might fall into the hands of Greta or Louise. In consequence, she finally arranged a meeting for the following Tuesday, but he could not come to the house or take her home tonight on account of her escort, Mr. Gettler. But on the following Tuesday at 6.30 near the Green Davidson, and he assured her that they would dine first at Frizzell's and then see the Corsair, a musical comedy at Libby's, only two blocks away. End of chapter 10. Oh my, I was mistaken. That was chapter 11, and here I am going on about as if it's chapter 10. My God. My God. The fun we have here. The, the mistakes we make. Well, Clyde's going to get his heart broken. I think we know that. Uh, things will proceed with he and Hortense, but I think it's safe to assume they will not work out that well. And we are seeing the first fraying edges of Clyde's new life, are we not? The first tendrils of smoke beginning to rise, the danger will become apparent sooner rather than later, I suspect. And look, what are we going to do? We can only enjoy Clyde's ascension so long before the descent begins. That's just how it is. And I suspect Tuesday at 6.30 over at Frizzell's over a meal of chops and baked potatoes and cream spinach and maybe even an alcoholic beverage or two. Maybe, maybe. That smoke will turn into a fire and that fire will consume all that it touches. We hope so, of course, because we are in the business of rooting for the worst of our, for our characters. We only want to see them suffer. That is why we read novels and novels of youth, where the suffering is ever more acute 
than the suffering of us older folk, for whom suffering has become rather passé. Let's end it there. Slightly longer episode, but hey, we need to finish the chapter. Chapter 11, of course, not chapter 10. And we'll pick it up with chapter 12 on another... Oh, I was going to say titillating, but I know I've said that before. Let's just say... uh, Ooh... Ah... Irritating? I hope it's not irritating. Acerbic? Let's go with acerbic, because it is a little bit acerbic. On another acerbic episode of Obscure. But until then... I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedgren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. And I will see you next time.